Mm-hmm. Hey all, um, here we are today with Chris Park, co-founder and chief strategy officer um, at Definity. Uh, Chris, good to see you and good to have you with us today. How are you? Yeah, great. Thanks. Good to see you as well. Pleasure to be here. And how I've got to start with, obviously, we've just had the uh, Jubilee weekend. Um, did you do anything for it? Celebrate it at all? or? Yeah, no, we had a bit of celebration. Uh, obviously, local village fairs, all that sort of good stuff. Um, also, thanks to the weather not doing the British thing, as was forecast, and staying a little bit drier. Also managed to get onto the River Raven and the paddleboard, uh, which I haven't done for a year. And for something that's incredibly slow moving, found that it uses an awful lot of muscles. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. So, uh, yeah, the family said I look like Bambi and Ice, but <laughs> yeah, I felt pretty bad, pretty, pretty painful nice the next day to stand up. Not near. I, 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 was, I wasn't doing anything quite as adventurous as you. I did, however, um, I, I did kind of just like, I watched, I, I watched it on TV and, and I'm, only in, I'm only in North London, so I probably should have gone, but it looks incredible. I just watched the Jubilee celebrations on, on, on the TV. And one thing you'll say about Britain, like we can definitely put on an event, can't we? Uh, it was good. Yeah. I'm sure you could have probably heard it from where you were. Yeah, probably actually. I, I well, I used to you know I used to live in like Primrose Hill, so I used to like on in the summer I would just walk through Regent's Park and I'd walk down towards like Buckingham Palace, um, and I would just sit there. Like it's, it's amazing. It's such it, it's such a cool it's such a cool part of London. You just get the beautiful views over, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But look, as much as I'd like to talk about that, um, you know, um, <laughs> definitely want definitely more interest in learning about affinity. Um, obviously, yeah. you know, you guys have got a lot going on. It's uh, again, and I say that I've said this to a few people, so don't want to come across this. You're in a very exciting area, but you're also in a very challenging, like a difficult space um, um, of 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 fintech. Um, but it seems like you guys are just really, really doing really well. Um, so it'd be great to learn a bit more about what it is you guys are doing, and you know, really what what the overall mission is for you guys. Yeah, no, no, listen, delighted to tell you about it. And yeah, it is it is challenging and exciting. Um, we're actually just going through a venture merger at the moment with one of our founding companies. Um, and the reason we've decided to bring the, the companies together is we, we started with a mission to be at the inflection point of, uh, I'll call it FX, so foreign exchange currency, traditional currency, uh, rather than fiat, because that always reminds me of a car, and then crypto. And the background that we came from, uh, at the time, a couple of years ago, I was working with a layer one blockchain company. Uh, I still support them um, as, as an advisor and kind of head up their UK presence. But they had, from 2017, 2018, built an entire layer one blockchain, um, all proof of stake as opposed to proof of work. Uh, hybrid, so ability to be semi-permission and so on. And in working with them, we were looking at use cases and commercial use cases for their technology in the UK financial services space. Uh, I came from a very long-standing financial services background, uh, sort of over two decades in traditional uh, boring banking, for want of a better word. How, so, how, did you get, how did you get into, as you say, like boring banking? Um, rather odd route, was an engineer, uh, electronic, electrical engineer. Um, that was probably the pinnacle of my programming days. Um, green screen 
see mainframes. Um, but <laughs> that was, yeah. So from an electrical engineer, I obviously learned a bit about manufacturing. As I came out in the middle of a recession, um, there weren't an awful lot of people employing and British manufacturing wasn't doing particularly well at the time. So funnily enough, I ended up working for a flight catering company, uh, which was one of those sort of graduate schemes. And they were looking for manufacturing skills, background and knowledge. So I ended up making airplane food, which um, wasn't a natural route. I didn't expect you to say that. that was, like, you really did have an untraditional route, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then as I sort of went through it after a couple of years, um, shift patterns and so on. I mean, listen, it was interesting, exciting. You, you wouldn't believe the rigmarole that goes on behind the scenes of getting these little plastic dishes onto your plane. And if they don't get onto the plane, you can have entire jumbos or now A380s, whatever, sitting at Heathrow at thousands of pounds a minute, waiting for someone to bring on a couple of little trays of food that probably amounts to about 30 pounds in total value. So it was ridiculous. It was literally as just in time as you could get. Food, hygiene and aeroplanes. So complete recipe for disaster. Um, but after a couple of years of night shifts and all sorts of interesting pieces, um, I moved on to run a building society branch. And again, wasn't uh, a traditional career progression, but I think whilst running a manufacturing plant was exciting and you learn an awful lot of things about sort of leadership and culture, you have 150 staff from all sorts of different backgrounds and religions and ethnicity. You really have to try and work out how to get people to work together in a harmonious environment and deal with problems and issues as they come up. I then moved into building society. I put that down to being literally a Boy Scout. I went to an assessment centre for what I thought looked like an interesting job. And the fact that I could tie knots and make a tripod that could fire a tennis ball across a field seemed to get me through into the job. Right. Which again, there's a whole new other. There's a whole other story there, isn't there? There is, um, and then spent a few years running a building society branch, and at the end of a few years, when the challenges just became another two people in a slightly bigger branch, and this was back in the days where you literally waited for people to bring deposits in before you could give money for a mortgage. So you would underwrite the mortgage in the back office, right. and then you would sit there and wait until enough deposits had come in from the customers then phone someone up and say, hello, Mr. Jones. Right. So, they'd actually, so they'd actually have to bring the money into the branch and actually have proof yeah. that they've got the deposit before they do. No, no, it was, this is an, an odd concept. Um, it, mutual building societies back in the day yeah. would literally wait, not on a branch by branch basis, but they would literally wait till their overall deposit book was big enough to be able to release more mortgages. Oh, so right, they were like, like yeah, they're being yeah, a bit so unlike Northern Rock, who were borrowing yeah. it in the interbank markets, hence the problem. They the, the building societies of old took a while to move away from have we got enough cash in from customers as deposits to be able to give money out to someone in a mortgage to buy a house. Okay. Um, so I worked there for a couple of years. Again, that was sort of a mixture of finance and leadership because you're running a a branch, small tight-knit team, um, lots of investors and people learning and so on that you have to go through. CPD was just starting to come into vogue. Uh, and then from there, I got asked to join a division of Royal Bank of Scotland. Um, so the Invoice Finance Division. 
and I worked through invoice finance, asset finance, uh, worked through the dot-com bubble. Um, so I helped set up the Royal Bank's Technology Centre of Excellence, which is basically focusing on all the old-school fintechs. So Oracle, JD Edwards, people like that. Right, <laughs> Back then. Yeah, um, Boohoo or whatever that jeans website <laughs> was. Um, and then we went through the dot-com bust, which was an interesting period, uh, touching lots of wood, managed not to lose any money, which probably put us in the minority. And from there, uh, our team morphed into a private equity leverage finance type team. So the managing directors at the time looked at the skill sets and said, okay, you've been spending the last three years lending to businesses with no assets and no cash flow or no physical assets, no, yeah. only cash flow. So you're now well-placed to look at lending alongside private equity. And I then spent four or five years doing leverage finance transactions uh, as a sort of a lead director, working with private equity houses, helping buy companies off stock markets, uh, some cross-border work, and also some small-stage venture capital investment uh, from a debt perspective. And then as that evolved, uh, the gentleman who headed up, who was my mentor, who headed up the sales business for financial markets derivative sales, came along to me and said, listen, I've got a whole bunch of derivative guys who understand their product, understand the markets. They don't understand the customers. So you've spent the last five years analyzing business models and customers. Can you come over and teach my guys? When was how... this? So this was the is, is early noughties, mid noughties. Right. It was before, before the financial crisis. It was before okay. the financial yeah. crisis. Um, and it, but not too long before the financial crisis. So I had three years and I was just doing as all good financial markets people do, getting ready to think about buying my first supercar. And then obviously the financial crisis get it. Long. So, oh, <laughs> that's why I'm still working with a gray beard. <laughs> well, I've been 10 like years older, okay. I'll be fine. Yeah. It looks like you so, guys are doing okay, to be fair. No, no. So that was it. And so that was the genesis. I then saw that through, uh, ran a couple of high performance teams uh, in financial markets for both the Lloyds Bank once I left RBS. And then laterally, uh, throughout my career, I'd always moved into new areas. I'd always looked to try and unpick a problem or unpick a customer requirement, understand a need, and then create a product or a business stream that supports that need. Yes. So I'd never really gone in and done the cookie cutter thing. I'd always sort of take the toy to bits, yeah. look at how it works, and maybe that's the engineer in me. Put it back together and see if I can get it working again and see, see if I can do something. One of the biggest mistakes we made at Rayon, um, and purely my fault, uh, when we first started or when Jan and I first started working together, I was like really excited by all the different technologies I realized that like we could build. And I spent the first year, 18 months, I was just like, right, what technologies can we build? This is cool let's now go out and sell it and it just failed it kept like flopping like every time and the reason being is kind of like what you said we need to be doing what you were doing and really thinking about the customer first what does the customer want and I think that actually about 
two years ago now 18 months ago we really just took on board kind of like your philosophy and now it's just very much about actually how does this benefit the customer what is the customer experience going to look like so like with with definity right now with your product how do you go about analyzing the customer how do you go about deciding what you need you know what the customer experience has to be like before you even start yeah. So, well, that was that really was the, the genesis of Definity. You know, we had the blockchain company. Um, one of my old team was working with a foreign exchange. Uh, it's called an ECN, but I'll, I'll, we'll call it a venue. So basically, it's sort of like the eBay of foreign exchange for financial institutions. So the company itself isn't a principle to anything, but it provides a place where financial institutions can buy and sell currency in large volumes at a very high frequency with admittedly very low margins, but that was the, the approach. And we got together and we looked at it and thought, what do people actually want? We've got blockchain, we've got you know the immutability, the public record, we've got smart contracts. Mm. If we can utilize this sort of behavior and architecture for, for an exchange where uh, without plugging any particular neobank, I'm sure you've probably got a card somewhere in your wallet where you can turn pounds into dollars in seconds. And it's nice and easy. If you are a hedge fund dealing with a bank, you have to wait two days for the money to come through to you through a clearinghouse. Yeah. Okay. So if you want to buy a billion dollars, then you, you wait before it actually lands in your bank account. That ties up a huge amount of capital in the financial system. And it's hugely inefficient and actually adds a few charges on the way for all these different intermediaries. So my ex-teammate and myself looked at what can we do with their capabilities and technology and the blockchain premise to try and help solve that problem for financial institutions. How can we help people trade more cheaply, faster, more efficiently and clear their trades quicker? rather than wait two days for settlement. And that was really where we started. I think how we then how we then went out into the potential customer base. And you know, this is one of the reasons for, for the merger that I mentioned. You know, DMA has tens of customers, um, I think kind of currently over 40 and growing very quickly. These are all financial institutions, hedge funds, whatever operate globally, significantly based out of London and New York. And they range everything from high frequency traders through to emerging market banks and so on, and a number of large market counterparties. We were talking to them. We had an idea of what we thought they might want. And we went out to create the technical architecture to deliver what they wanted. The more we spoke to them, the more we realized that they weren't really just looking for a solution to do uh, dollars to euros they were looking for a solution and this surprised us they were looking for a solution that could help them do euros to ethereum and bitcoin to dollars they were actually interested from an asset point of view in moving into the crypto space and for us that was a bit of a surprise why, um, why were you surprised do you think well that until the, then, yeah sorry go on. yeah no, I was gonna say, up till then i think there'd been a perception uh, that crypto was an exciting asset class, but not really 
appropriate for uh, what I say institutional investors or banks. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't something that was observed, that was regulated, was supported, and also had an awful lot of volatility in it, still does, but had an awful lot of volatility in it that meant it was very difficult for banks or uh, prime brokers or market participants to understand and explain to the regulator their risk positions. So there was a bit of a hesitancy. What we saw was that it was very much being built out as a new asset class. So whereas two years ago, almost the same as with blockchain, two years ago, people were saying, you know, what is blockchain? You know, really, when you go to traditional banks, it was, what is blockchain? Then, say, a year, year and a half ago, a lot of the conversations were, well, why blockchain? What benefit does it bring to financial services? What's the point of it? Um, Now the conversations are very much, how blockchain? And this is, and it's also not just in a, asset tokenization perspective, it's also in a crypto perspective. There is demand and incredibly high growth on an institutional point of view in the adoption of crypto as an asset class. Right. And that did surprise us. The more we spoke to people, the more we realized they were keen to grow their position in it. And that was a surprise. So how did we end up trying to deliver the customer experience? We asked the customer, we understood the markets, we understood blockchain, and then we set about trying to build something that then gave them what they wanted. Um, Where are we in our journey? We've got to the point where we now have strategic partnerships with a number of the key components. So no man is an island. Um, You know, we don't, we're not building an entire ecosystem ourselves. We are working with a number of key partners and participants in the financial services marketplace to create the network for banks and hedge funds to be able to trade crypto in i was going to say the same way as foreign exchange hopefully in a faster cheaper and more efficient way a more transparent way than foreign exchange but in that same direction and that still is the finity sweet spot it's the inflection point of foreign exchange and crypto okay. uh, and with the merger we now have foreign exchange business we've got the architecture of the crypto business we've actually started recording the first foreign exchange transactions on a permissionless blockchain so i think we were kind of as far as we're aware the first the first globally to to undertake that you know the customers accept the information we release but people going to our native chain um, can actually can actually look and see the foreign exchange flow on a delayed uh, and anonymized and a reduced information basis, but they can see the flow through going from financial institutions. Yeah. So, you know, where's, our... where's all this going? Like, like in terms of in terms of like blockchain technologies um, for institutions, how are they? What, what are the use cases, and how how are they going to start using it in new ways? So. We obviously believe um, that they will be very interested in looking at transfer of value through crypto, as well as foreign exchange-like instruments. And you know, we've seen a lot of uh, concern around stable coins recently, particularly yeah. uncollateralized ones. Yeah. However, there are also far more heavily collateralized stable coins. And I think the growth in the stable coin marketplace versus being a, a front runner uh, to CBDCs, 
is an interesting concept. Having spoken to uh, national banks across a couple of European states, we're also aware that some of the first adoption for CBDC might actually be in the wholesale perspective, because we are aware that, you know, in Europe, there are bond and commercial paper programs where based on blockchain. So banks have got together and are supporting and using platforms to transfer or issue commercial paper on a blockchain platform. But that's one leg of the transaction. So the next leg is clearly where the funds that they get back from selling the commercial paper into the marketplace come back on the same platform as the sale was made. So at the moment, they're still using the traditional banking payment and settlement systems to get the funds in. And the commercial paper side is recorded in the blockchain and is transferred. So there's that transparency, immutability, certainty of ownership, you know, public or part public record. That's all great. But without the consequence of the funds coming back the other way, I don't think it's really the end game. I think the banks are halfway in putting financial assets onto blockchain. Stablecoins and CBDC or greater adoption of crypto will enable the value flow to be two-way. And that's really where we're going to see a big, big tick up in what's happening. But do you feel now that there's enough incentive for the banks to start throwing more and more capital into this space? Uh, So... When we started our conversations, I think blockchain, so a couple of years ago, blockchain was uh, an interesting concept, but a lot of people didn't really get it as to how it would work in financial services. I think now, or I think I, I know now from the conversations we're having, there isn't a major bank or fund that we have spoken to who isn't looking at how they adopt it. Uh, you know and that goes from investing you know some there is a lot of corporate venture capital going in so we're aware of some global financial institutions who have set up venture teams to invest in blockchain related projects so banks are making direct investments into businesses that provide the plumbing the technology and the architecture for blockchain based platforms sure so that to me is a, a true indicator that they're there to stay. So when people get very bearish about blockchain or about the crypto market, at the moment, that's all very retail focused. You know, the majority of people in, in, in crypto, the majority of the people participating in this marketplace are retail focused at the moment, albeit on a global basis. Right. Uh, the number of participants from an institutional basis that are starting to come to the party mm is increasing and is already significant. We just haven't seen it surface yet. So one of the reasons we are, we, we've not packed up shop and gone home after the last few weeks is because we know that institutions take longer to get there, but when they start moving, they're far harder to yeah. stop. Yeah. They won't get switched off by 50% asset depreciation. Sure. They won't take their toys home and go away. They're actually investing in building the architecture and the platforms that the future of financial services in certain areas will rest upon. So that's why we know it's here to stay. And what similarities, if any, um, are you seeing between, and you've already mentioned it once, you know, 
between this so-called crypto winter and the uh, 2000, 2001, like tech bubble crisis? So if anything, yeah, no, this is a very good question. Um, And there probably are comparisons. What this will do is I think this will focus people's minds ultimately on commerciality and use. In 2000, 2001, I sat through a presentation for a company that had raised about $50 million. um, And their premise was, with a nice slide deck, that they were going to create a website focused solely on selling jeans. And that was going to be their main standpoint. And there were however many jeans, pairs of jeans sold in the world every year. And they only had to make 5% of the global marketplace. And then they were all going to be multimillionaires. Clearly, they hadn't realized about customer attraction, stickiness, marketing, everything else. They thought it was as simple as building a website and people would turn up and they would capture market share and all become very rich. And some of the VCs actually believed them. Um, they, they, never, they never got there. They spent most of the $50 million before they had to pull the shutters down. Um, they, they didn't really understand the, the customer, which back to your earlier point, they didn't yeah. really understand the commerciality. They weren't businesses, they were ideas. And where I, I think it will be interesting to see going forward is now people still buy jeans and clothes sure. massively over the internet. So it wasn't, it wasn't a flawed premise. It was just poorly executed in a way. And that's what this crypto winter, whatever, will do. Much the same as with the dot-com bust. It will flush out a lot of people who have nothing more than ideas. And it will bring it back. And even some, there will even be some bigger technology crises, shall we say. Some, some of the bigger companies that have technology that haven't really figured out how they're going to use it or if it's good enough to be used. Yeah. I think there will be casualties there. What you will see will be a more targeted, focused and commercial uh, crypto blockchain economy coming right. out the other side that's actually ha- is a business and is giving people something that they want and they're prepared to pay for or use. Yeah. And do, do, you, do or VCs or investors, do they change their tact over this period? Or like, like, you know, I, I think the reality is that I don't believe the fintech sector is saturated at all. I, I think that actually all we're going to see is the creation of more and more fintech companies or more companies becoming fintech companies, should we say. Um, but that said, there's certainly a lot of like fintech companies out there that aren't providing utility and don't have the resources to make it through the next two, three, four, five years, right? Um, will, will we see the way in which investors uh, operate? Will, will that change? Will they start to say, actually, we're not investing in startups that haven't got at least X amount in revenue? Or, you know, I, I think we're already seeing it, actually. So I'm kind of answering my own question here. We're starting, <laughs> to see, yeah, we're starting to see investors be, you know, slightly more cautious. But at the same time, it's just been, it's mad. It's mad the amount of money that's been thrown behind some fintech companies um, and the crazy, crazy valuations. And I don't know if they're justified, but seeing, I think I read that a few months ago, Stripe was um, valued at $100 billion. Yeah. Like, how, Wait, 
how do they come up with these numbers? It is interesting, and, and, and VC is a very interesting concept. I mean, having worked with the sector, um, startup funding, it always made me smile. People would say, well, yeah, we're, we're into startups, but you need to have minimum revenues of X. It's kind of, well, okay, but... Then, or they don't lead the round. Yeah, but that's fine. But if you're a startup, really you might not have revenues. <laughs> That's yeah, the whole point of being a yeah. startup, yeah? Sure. The clues sure. in the name, it's a start. Yeah, it's the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've got revenues of two or three million recurring every year, you're not really, you might still be in the startup bracket, but you're not really a startup because you've sure. obviously built something that works that people are paying for. Yeah. Um, I think the UK and Europe are probably running hard to try and catch up with what's been happening in the states and in other parts of the world where startup funding and money is put into businesses at a very early stage and pre-revenue funding is possible i mean that was one of the reasons we undertook an ido um, we we had a little bit of pre-seed money we realized that to build a product and knit together the technologies that we had from our two founding companies would take more than that pre-seed money. But until we got to that stage, we wouldn't have stable recurring revenues. So therefore going to the VC community um, as a startup, we might not tick the boxes, the side of the Atlantic that they needed to get the money, which is why we then undertook, um, I suppose our, our, our baby company, we undertook an IDO to raise our own seed funding. How does an IDO work? So, it's very much like an initial public offering, except instead of using an exchange, who's the central sort of custodian and orchestrator of it, you directly issue the tokens to the community through a, we used a launch pad um, that has just moved on to Cardano, but at the time, since Cardano wasn't functional, was uh, Ethereum based. And our Launchpad card starter basically has a community. And we spoke to crypto VCs who made investments into the token. And also we released a certain number of utility tokens through the use of a Launchpad to a community that they had built as a community. Mm. So it's, it's, it's decentralized. It's not orchestrated through a central point. We decided to go down the route of a utility token rather than a security. Okay. Um, and the reason that we decided to do that was we knew that, oddly enough, the weight of money that issuing a security token requires from a legal and a jurisdictional perspective actually is counterintuitive to raising smaller amounts of money from a community to deliver a purpose. Um, so th the idea was very interesting. Uh, we, you know, we had to engage with uh, some, some fairly uh, broad concepts. Uh, we had to define the utility of the token. Our lawyers had to give us a regulatory opinion that we were indeed providing a utility rather than a security. And therefore it was not, um, it wouldn't be considered by a regulator as something that they should be uh, monitoring or controlling. And yeah, we, we sort of ran through the IDO over the course of about two months, I think. 
and then that raised our, our seed capital. That was just over a year ago. And with that seed capital, we then set around doing two things. One was building the technology for our commercial business. The other bit was the community that had supported us and the venture capital community that had supported us were now our community. So we almost had a sideline business yeah, yeah, yeah. where we had a token community. Uh, so ask how much you raised? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we raised around about $2.5 million. Right. Okay. So that was sort of the, the initial. Um, and that was from a mixture of venture capital funds, or mainly venture capital investors, and then a small amount through our public community. And how much runway did they give you? So, well, we've actually gone revenue positive within nine months. And we're also are revenue positive with our merger with um, DMA Link, which is the foreign exchange company. So it's an odd, it's an odd question. We're not technically on a, on a, on a burn without, Mm -hmm. because we're continuing to top up the hopper. I, I think, we will probably look at some form of uh, accelerant series A or bigger funding round just to hit turbocharge on some of the growth if the markets sort of remain comfortable and open. Uh, but, you know, we, we have revenues. So our combined company now has healthy revenues, has paying customers, and we expect the multi-asset functionality. So the first crypto trades to be happening soon. So that's sort of one one to watch. But they're already over a billion dollars a day flowing through our foreign exchange platform between yeah. financial institutions. So the commercial business is actually sort of running from the community what perspective. Year, what, what year were you founded? What, what year did you guys start? So we started in October, September, October 2020. We did the IDO Amazing. in... May 26th of May 2021 we recorded our first will be a very small revenue so we recorded the first foreign exchange transactions to the blockchain under our revenue share agreement so we became revenue positive before the end of 2021 only just we continued into Q1 and part of our token utility our tokenomics was our, in our white paper, we agreed that we would take a proportion of our revenues yeah. and go and buy back tokens from the open marketplace and uh, we'll, we'll say burn them. Technically, it's sending them to a graveyard smart contract, but it, it takes them out of circulation. Yeah. So that's one of the parts of token utility of the tokenomics of our model. And last week, we completed the, the Q1 revenue portion buyback from the open marketplace. So... One of my jobs was to go onto one of our exchanges and yep. buy a pile of tokens back and take them out of circulation. So the tokens that remain in circulation then become more valuable, potentially more valuable. Yeah. And how how many of you started it? So there were six of us as founders. Um, did you throw any money in to begin with, or was it just you all bought your own skills? So we brought skills. We raised a little bit of pre-seed. Yeah. So yeah. we had the sort of pre-seed that was a little bit sort of friends and family. Um, really, the majority of our input was blood, sweat, and tears in technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from our two founding companies, we brought in 
the access to a layer one blockchain protocol and the layer two, which is Definity that we built on top of it, was built with that engineering team. But you're so, playing it down a little bit, but when I think about what you've done in such a short space of time, it's pretty impressive. Well, not it's very impressive. Yeah, I, I, we spoke to a potential investor who was interested, should we go ahead and sort of series A? And their, their sort of question was, well, we like the concept of working with you. Why didn't we invest in you? And I guess, to be honest, the simple answer was the people at the top of their fund go to different cocktail parties to the ones that I do. But is that what it is? Though? Uh, it, it, is that genuinely a big part? So, so like, look, again, like just be completely like transparent with you. So, you know, we have we haven't raised any money um, for round at all. Like, we have had a Jan and I had a company before failed, like, and, and again, we, we bought in the wrong investor for better or worse. We bought we bought in the wrong investor. We had to like literally start again, and I'm now at a point where it is very much. If you're not at the right cocktail parties, if you're not in the right set, if you're not if you're not in the right circles, you're not raising anything. And if anything, you have to be very careful about all these accelerator programs because what you're doing, and I'm not naming any names here, but we we did an application not that long ago and like smashed it. Like, to be fair, a lot of my applications haven't been very good. But this one I thought, right, went through all that we we'd had about I think maybe about eight, 900 rejections. So, you know, we'd learned a lot in that time. Like, in, yeah. if you think about it, when I say 800 and 800, that doesn't mean we wrote 800 or 900 original um, applications. You know, we'd obviously written them and refined them and we saved them on our Google Drive. We know, knew what answers to use and we might make new videos. Um, and uh, we found that, uh, you know, we did the application and we'd been speaking with them beforehand. So we knew exactly like, you know, they kind of, they'd been good to us. They'd helped us. And we, we got a rejection. Fine. That happens. But then like we, when we, um, when they announced who the winners were, who got the money, it was a company that had not like a similar idea. I would say like 90%, 95%, like almost identical idea. And so I jumped, I jumped on, um, I jumped on the LinkedIn. I found that I went to see the founders. I went through their social media. I thought, have they mentioned this idea before? Is it something they were working on? And it wasn't even close. It wasn't even like they hadn't, they hadn't ever mentioned it. But this is like a big, big VC. And I was kind of like, have they just, and I don't know. I genuinely don't know. Like I, I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that it doesn't go on, but it seems like too big a coincidence to think that, that we've kind of given them yeah, the application, it was a big application and there's all the demos and all the work behind it. And I thought we've just given them a blueprint for how to build our company. And have they just gone and given the money to their friends? That's always a nervous point, I think, when yeah. you're going to people. So you, you go on to all these VC uh, conversation forums or VC help guides and things like that. And they'll all tell you, Oh, VCs hate signing NDAs because it restricts them commercially. Da, 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 da. Cool. But as a founder, it is always very difficult to turn around and say, well, I, at, at this stage, I'm, you know, yes, okay, I could sue you. Really? With what? The reason I've come to you is because I want money. I yeah, can't I'm afford not... lawyers to yeah. sue you. You've got lots oh. of money. So there's always that 
you know, I want you to promise to do the right thing. I want you to sign the NDA. VC say, well, we don't sign NDAs. It's just part of our policy. So if you want to talk to us, you've just got to accept that you're sharing information on a kind of duty of care basis. But there is always at the back of your mind a little bit of nervousness that says, I'm, I'm giving somebody everything that I own at the moment, which is an early stage company is often just yeah. intellectual property. It's an idea. Yeah. I'm explaining my idea fully to someone and sometimes even giving them the roadmap and the well, business plan. Hold on. We've got 20,000 users, right? We've got 85,000 people in our community. We got like we got like six paying clients. Like so, I'm not just giving them a, as an idea. I'm saying this is exactly not, not just this is not just what our idea is. This is what we've done. This is how we've done it. We've got a burn rate of like X a month. Um, you know, we're not spending any money at all, and we've been able to get to this point. And then it's just very odd to see that they've set up where something almost identical. Like yeah. And all they've got, by the way, it's just a landing page, which you can put together in half an hour with like the words, but even the tone of it, I'm like, this sounds a lot like my application. Yeah, and I think that's sometimes... And they didn't interview us, right? And I got suspicious. They, they announced the winners, announced the winners without like interviewing them, right? And I just thought, that's weird. They're going to give away a seven-figure sum like without interviewing people. And I thought... And I said to Jan afterwards, well, you know why they don't interview anyone? Because they've already got the people in place to actually build the company. They've got their friends and their co But is that it? And, and I, think, I think the reason why I'm pushing on this so much is because, you know, like Rayon is there for, com- for people who want to build their own startups. They don't necessarily go to the right cocktail parties or you know, they don't have the right network. Like, like what should they be doing if they, you know, because you can't just give your ideas away that freely. Like it's naive of me to have done what I've done. Yeah. So I think my response to this person was actually we went out, we had some good and bad apples in our VC community that we raised the funding from. Yeah. Uh, But we took our pre-seed money. We started building it. We spoke to the pre-seed investors and ourselves and said, this idea or opportunity, we actually have people come to us and say, we don't want to invest in your equity, we want tokens. So we said, okay, let's look at this. Um, you know, we had some veterans of a previous ICO, so uh, a token offering that had happened in the blockchain side, um, probably 2017, 2018. So we knew it could be done. And some of the community came and said, yeah, we'd like to invest in you, but in the form of tokens. And that was sort of why we decided to focus our attentions and some of our pre-seed money on doing the IDO to sort of raise the the capital that would traditionally be pre-seed stroke seed. At that point, uh, we decided to build the MVP and to start to commercialize the proposition and get the customers on board and create the plumbing and the architecture to enable a live business. And that was what we used the, the funding for. Uh, and we've just quietly gone about building something that works yeah. and getting customers on boarded and, and speaking to them. We're aware that there are other people out there who are raising huge amounts of money with a far less developed product. But in a way, it's a little bit when the tide goes out, you know, the, the question earlier, what happens in the sort of, the, if it is a, a crypto winter 
and that sort of prevails, what happens to some of these fintechs and crypto companies, uh, then they could run into trouble. And you're right, building something that works with the money that you've got, positive cash flow, getting yeah. customers on board and showing that you have a commercial proposition. Yeah. That's what we decided to do. Yeah. Rather than take yeah. huge chunks of money and then go away and start to figure it out and and that's yeah. kind of what, what we're at. We're, so we're at that point now. We're like, forget this. Like, we're just going to do it all ourselves. Like, do it through sales, build the platform, get a bit more money, build the platform more, get more money, yeah. improve the platform. And, and if we do end up working with an investor, I think it just has to be like a natural progression. But we're looking at some of our like, um, and this is quite interesting for you because you must think the same. You must look at some of your competitors and you must think, God, you've raised tens and tens and tens of millions and your technology yeah. sucks. Not only does your technology <laughs> suck, like, like, you know, your, your go-to-market strategy sucks as well. Yeah, listen, I mean, competition is good. It keeps you keen. It keeps you healthy. Uh, but there are times where we kind of have a high smile and think, crikey, there's an awful lot of window dressing here. Yeah. So what is the substance? You know, the clothes look fine, but is it really a dummy underneath? Or is it a, you know, is it a genuine, is it a genuine article? And it was back to your jeans analogy, right? The jeans come. Yeah. 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 And there, there is an element, there will always be an element with early stage companies of fake it till you make it. Yeah. Some of the biggest companies did that. You know, I remember even in the, in the dot-com days when Google was starting to emerge as, you know, clearly a dominant player in the space as we kind of went through the noughties. And for years, I remember looking at their annual reports thinking, so where's the bit that says we're making profits? You yeah. Know? Yeah, yeah, this is our this is our route to making money. Yeah. So there is a degree of sometimes fake it till you make it, but yeah. ultimately they had you know very good technology and a commercial purpose, and also they they had the people behind them, and that's oh. the other thing that's very important. You know, you talk about your community. You know, clearly we've got our own community. We've got our community of customers working with people to get them to work to, to help you get to where you want to get to to give yeah. them what they want yeah. is incredibly powerful and yeah. i think google did that in, in in spades you know the number of years in the noughties that they were the top ranked uh, graduate you know wannabe <laughs> placement position was there and then they did things like saying okay your your hobby is cycling so one day a week or one day a fortnight you know, get on your bike, go and cycle around California, come back to the ranch and then tell us how we could use our technology to enhance your leisure activity. What oh. apps can we create on the Google platform for cyclists? And yeah. that's an incredibly powerful idea because you then start to bring your, your team, your employees and your community together as one. Yeah. And you're then not really selling something to or trying to convince someone to buy something yeah. you the people that are going to buy it are developing it and giving you feedback and telling you what they want so you're yeah. actually just delivering um in all the years i worked in financial markets you know everyone called it oh, derivative sales derivative sales the reality was i i always put my hands up and said i'm not a great sales guy you know, my job is more being the person that listened to what the customer wanted, tried to understand their business model, help them understand what their issues might be. And then they would almost say, well, can you give me this? That's not selling, really. 
Sure. That's not, you know, that's that, that's almost delivery. <laughs> yeah. And far yeah. easier than trying to convince somebody to buy something without them really understanding no, what it is. It's hard. Like, so, so have, have you found that the way in which you go about selling has changed? Because, again, before the pandemic, I would arrange a meeting. I would go and see someone. I'd go and see, like, five or six people in an office, similar to, like, your background there. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, like, and they would make a decision in a couple of days. Now, obviously, no one's doing face to face meetings, which, by the way, I hate. Um, but, you know, there's very, it's very much a case where you're meeting someone on a video link. If they're interested, they go and dilute your message to their colleague. They'll get their colleague on the call who will then dilute it to their manager. Like, like it, are you past that point now, or are you still finding it's much harder to build those partnerships and actually sell your product? So I think there's a, there's a mix. So that some people have been happy to come back out. So there are days where, you know, I will go and have a series of meetings. and I'll try and sort of line them up to be kind of efficient, but I'll go and have a series of meetings. And it is powerful for certain personalities to be able to look them in the eye, sit across a table from them, and actually, in a way, it's almost easier for them to feel your passion or your commitment face to face. However, in banking and technology, one of the things I have noticed is there are certain types of people who actually are quite fact focused and having the ability to get two or three people, even from different countries onto a, an extended zoom call having lots of little boxes and addressing their audience that, you know, they might have, in our case, they might have a manager or a partner, um, part piece of the business that they operate in, sitting in New York, for example. Mm. And to get that meeting before would have meant somebody going over to New York or you'd have to wait till the person from New York came over here. That could take a long time, could take months. Yeah. So I think in some instances that it shortens the time scales yeah. and reduces the lines of the, the length of the lines of communication because you can actually get the manager on and he doesn't mind turning up for a meeting because while you're talking all the product stuff he doesn't care about, he can hit the hit the video off and get on with his emails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But at least he hears the message firsthand. Sure. So it is genuinely a 50-50. And there are other people where if you're not shaking their hand, looking them in the eye and sitting down across from them, you just know it's going to get nowhere because it's far easier to do plaudits in a Zoom. Sure. And but I was going to say, but is there an element of, you know, and again, uh, going back to the startup, a lot of people that will see these videos, you know, they'll build their own startup and it might, might be their first startup. Is it a case that like, you know, between the six of you, the guys that started Affinity, that you really... Um, like you had a network there beforehand or is it something you feel that you're, you've built now since over the last couple of years again you've seen what can only be described as i wouldn't don't know if exponential is the right word but you've definitely seen like really rapid growth yeah and i think to be yeah to to be fair we were reasonably well established in various different markets and we like to think that sort of some of the power we have uh a, Footsie are a global company's ex-CIO on the, who's on the blockchain side now. Yeah. So board level, very 
technically very strong, his chief product designer. You know, on the other side, we have markets professionals who've been working with yep. banks and hedge funds and the people that make decisions about platforms and so on inside some of the biggest world, the world's biggest financial institutions. And they had established relationships and business that they've been doing together for a number of years. Yeah. So I guess we were slightly lucky in as much as as a founding team, there were half a dozen people. Um, unfortunately, none of us were in our 20s. You know. We, but, we well, had unfortunately, but that's that that also you know comes with some advantages as well. I look at again, Jan is like god, I forget 15 years younger than me, right? Yeah. He's in his early 20s. Um, you know, and, and I, I think that actually there's certainly an advantage to having a young tech team or you know, a young tech lead at least, uh CTO. And uh, you know, I, I think having experience in that room as well must must help massively. Yes, and that's that is the interesting bit. So what you gain with experience, it's sometimes very easy then to become quite conservative or to bring the shutters in. So your mindset becomes, okay, this is what I know. So this is the lane I'm sticking to. Yeah. We were really lucky that uh, there were at least a couple of us in that founding team who, you know, you know take my rambling career out of it, but a couple of us in the founding team who'd been historically very comfortable jumping into different lanes. I get you. And that sort of gave us experience, but also the ability sometimes to act like the youngsters not to be yeah. worried about trying something yeah. different and going and doing it. Do you know what? I am, I, I never really, I think about, I ask myself this question quite a lot, but I never really wanted to run a company. Like, I, I think for me, it was just like, I worked for someone, hated working for someone. Like, it wasn't there, but like, it was a great company, nothing against them, but it was just not for me. And um, I think that, like, more than anything right now like there's much more a focus there's a problem that I really wanted to focus on I thought no other company is focusing on this and it was something more that I just felt had to be done you know um but I I think that people probably underestimate what it takes to actually a go and build a startup and b actually go and build a team right and yeah that's that is always that that is an interesting definitely a very interesting challenge I think where uh, one, it's refreshing to hear, you know, somebody else who started with a vision and a mission because that's so key. Um, you talked about incubators and accelerators earlier. Uh, you know, we've listened to a couple of introduction evenings and some of the questions that come out, people almost say, I want to be an entrepreneur. Excellent. What's your idea? Well, I haven't found my idea yet. I want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. And you know, a lot of people start from that point of view that they like the idea of being an entrepreneur, but don't really know what it is. It's horrendous. Like, yeah. Whereas I think I the key to success yeah. is to say, you know, there, listen, there will be some people who are really lucky that just happen across a great idea at the right time and it flies and that's super. But ultimately, a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, and a lot of businesses that are successful and pulled forward by their entrepreneurial team. Um, their founding team are people where they've got a vision for what they want to deliver. Um, not a stuck vision, not a, a strict vision, because startup success is also about being able to pivot. 
you know, you're a bit like the duck. There's got to be a lot going on under the surface and you've got to be able to change direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's key to, to delivering something successful. You know, we started looking at foreign exchange decks um, and the SEC came out and said they felt DEXs were uh, difficult to regulate and therefore they were not going to allow DEXs to operate um, in anything that touched their perimeters. And we decided at that point that we were going to work with global financial institutions, a lot of which are based in the States, mm. um, and they were part of our customer demographic, then creating a decentralized exchange in the short term with the SEC railing against it was possibly not a good idea. So we ended up in a hybrid model where we created a centralized venue concept, but with uh, you know participants coming in from sort of different custodians and anonymized, et cetera. So it was a hybrid centralized, decentralized exchange. So we pivoted very quickly from the true decentralized exchange because we knew the regulator wasn't keen to do it. And again, the other thing uh, about what you deliver is also in financial services driven partly by what you're allowed to deliver. And you know, we were lucky enough to be invited along to the FCA's crypto sprint. And one of those exact conversations was around the problem statement is how do you regulate a decentralized global network? And what's the answer? Let's see, that, that's an interesting thing. That, like, that's, uh, that's one thing I go back and forth on in my mind. How do you regulate a decentralized network in, in any capacity? I think our initial conversation with the FCA, so clearly they, they will come up with their own conclusions and you know we were requested not to discuss till they released their findings, what it was we were discussing as part of that workshop. Uh, but you know, I think one, it was interesting that they wanted to explore as a policy sprint rather than a technology sprint, as a policy sprint mm-hmm. with the crypto community. The other thing, that we initially recognized in our particular business model was if we had financial institutions who themselves are regulated at either end of a transaction, do you need to regulate the pipeline the transaction happens across? Mm -hmm. Now, at that time, the regulator sort of said no. And I think that might be part of the answer. We're already seeing that in the retail space a little bit where people are being provided crypto wallets, but the onboarding process fulfills a part of the regulation. You know, clearly it's always going to be difficult for a US or a UK or a European regulator to regulate a crypto trade that's happening between somebody in Guatemala and somebody in the DRC. Well, they, they can't, they, they can't. Yeah. Right. So like, it, let's be... Yeah, exactly. So it's understanding what you're trying to achieve. You're not trying to regulate the entire world, but you are trying to protect, for example, UK or American citizens and consumers. And I think if you clarify your objectives, there are still ways that people can participate in DEXs or decentralized exchanges, but at least they understand the framework and the rules for their participation and the potential risks rather than trying to regulate everything out. How do people that have never invested in crypto before but they're about to or they want to how do they go about protecting themselves now because 
you know, then we can see so many scams come up. Sorry, what was yeah. sorry, education? Education. You know, they, a little bit like all markets, information ad- advantage and disadvantage is a big issue. Sure. And without the regulators there to necessarily protect people in the same way as they would in traditional securities, uh, education is the way the, the way to do it. You know, go, go back to right back to the old days, you know, penny stocks, whatever it is, you know, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is, you know, logic, common sense and commercial reality are often suspended when you get into bubble markets, but the basic premises don't disappear. People just forget them for a while. And then when people remember them, that's when the crash comes, whether that's for an individual or for a marketplace. So I, I think education is one of the key proponents. You know, it's about helping people understand. And that, to be honest, one of the things that we did with our community, you know, we operate, uh, we run a technical analyst um, as our sort of in-house retained technical analyst. He publishes on all different asset markets every week for, for the community. So for our token holders to get access to. We have an anomaly detector that looks at irregularities and trading patterns of crypto markets that we also provide to people who stake our tokens. Yeah. So again, we recognize with, with our community, what we wanted to do was work with them in a form of education and support them, help them understand not just the crypto asset class, but also other asset classes. So they may still not want to invest and we're not giving any form of investment advice or recommendation, but yeah. we are providing a form of market observation and also uh, market clarity. And We're just trying to help people so they can so they can see it. And I have well, a, oh, sorry. I'm just going to say painfully aware that I have a call I meant to be hosting in about one minute, and well, we've no, talked over. Yeah, Should no. We well, look, up later on, so you can presumably yeah. knit bits together. No, no. I was going to say that what what I can do. Look, we we we, we can honestly we can wrap it up like there. I can just like say the end, but. I was going to say that's, yeah, that I, I think we've got, let me just, one sec, let me just pause it one sec. In fact, no, let me just, yeah, cool. Chris, um, great for that. Thank you so much for uh, your time today. It's been really interesting and, uh, yeah, great to catch up. Uh, listen, pleasure chatting, uh, you know, and great to hear your thoughts. And, yeah, hopefully the musings of the madman will resonate somewhere around. No, definitely. Well, great to see you. Thank you. <laughs> Good to speak.